Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Well, as you know, we are in the middle of a capital campaign. And for seven weeks, starting two weeks ago and ending on Commitment Sunday, Sunday, November 10th, we'll be preaching on themes related to giving. Two weeks ago, Pastor Carell preached about God's lavish generosity, and uh, he reminded us that God is rich in mercy. God freely gives every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The point of that, we need to be generous like God is generous. Then last week, Pastor Bailey preached about Gideon. God didn't need 32,000 soldiers to fight his battles. He didn't even need 10,000. He didn't even need 300, which is where it all ended, remember? The point of that, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your money. God is rich and generous. He owns the cattle on every hill. God doesn't need your money. But God is pleased to use your money. God uses instruments. God uses tools. God uses means to get his work done. Now let me show you what I mean by that. Turn to Acts 27. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Acts 27, 21 to 44. So they gave, me the, uh, they gave me the drink from the fire hydrant sermon. So I hope you're thirsty. Um, and I hope it doesn't all land on your shirt. But we're going to go a lot of places. We're going to start Acts 27, 21 to 44. This is the Apostle Paul and, and a bunch of other people are in a ship. They've taken Paul prisoner. He is on his way to Rome to stand before the Roman emperor, before Caesar, to give an account of himself, ultimately to give an account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're on this ship, and there's a storm. So the ship is in great danger of, of sinking. Verse 21, Acts 27, 21. When they had gone a long time without food because of the, of the storm... Then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice. I told you so. And and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. No one's going to die. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings 
and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said this to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow struck, stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. It's a great story. It's true. This is what happened. What did God promise to do? He promised to get the Apostle Paul safely to Rome, and he also promised that no one on the ship would die. That's what God promised to do. Did, did Paul believe that promise? Absolutely. Confidently. But what does he do in response to that promise? He acts. He, he does things. He warns. He encourages. He says to the centurion, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. He tells all the passengers that if they're going to live, they have to eat something. He says, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And then the centurion in charge, when the soldiers are about to kill everybody, the centurion says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. And so, Luke writes, it happened that they were all brought safely to land. It just happened that they were all brought safely to land. How did it happen? Well, God decreed it. God promised it. The angel came to Paul and prophesied it. God brought it to pass. But think of this. Never did Paul think, hey, you know what? The angel spoke. God has promised. God's got it covered. I'm going to go down to the hold and take a nap on my hammock. We're just going to ride this out. I know how it's going to end. No problem. 
It's not what he did, is it? Paul knew that God would keep his word and save all of the lives, but Paul also knew that God uses means. I know for a certain fact that God will save all of these people, but if you don't stop these men, we're all going to die. I know that God will preserve all of us alive, but if you don't eat something, you're not going to make it. Those things go hand in hand. That is not a contradiction. It's just a recognition that God uses means. God uses means to get his will done in this world. Where else do we see this? We, th- we see this everywhere in Scripture. We see it all the way at the very beginning of the Bible when God creates the world. How does God create the world? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. He used his word to get the work done. In Colossians chapter 1, 16, speaking of Jesus Christ, for by him all things were created. By means of Christ all things were created whether uh, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. God used the means of his son, the word, to get the work done. Hebrews 1-2, speaking of Jesus, through whom also he made the world. God used means to create the world. He used his word and he used our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God. And ever since he did that, ever since he created the world, God has used the means of the world to reveal himself to men. Romans 1, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God uses the means of the world to teach all of us about himself. He uses means. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God, the firmament, their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. This is how God provides for his servants. He uses means. Remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the book Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the book Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. This is the God who can just speak and make manna fall from heaven. But instead, he uses means. He uses birds, picking up scraps of meat, scraps of... But that meat was good, wasn't it? It must have been good enough. Scraps of bread. And he feeds his servant. He provides for him. And then it says, it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. 
He provides for his servants through means. Birds, widows. This is how prayer works. God uses the means of prayer to bring about his will in the world. Psalm 2, verse 8. This is a psalm about the the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ over all the nations. But look at what it says, verse 8. God the Father speaking to God the Son. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. How is that going to happen? How is he going to rule over the earth? Well, he has to ask. The Son of God has to ask. God the Father. God uses means. He uses the means of prayer. Matthew 6, 5 to 8, Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So, wait a minute. If the Father knows what I need before I ask him, then why do I have to ask him? Because God delights in using means. In this case, he delights in showing himself to be kind and generous when we ask. He he likes doing that. This is how he works. James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus says in Luke 11, so I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks it will be opened. If you don't ask, you won't get an answer. If you don't seek, you won't find. If you don't knock, it will not be opened to you. God uses those means to bring about his will. Same thing is true in salvation. God uses means to bring about the eternal salvation of his people. Look at this, Matthew 9, 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, ask, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He sees all these crowd, he, crowds, he, he, he sees what they're like, he has compassion on them. This is the son of God. This is the one who says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. This is the one who speaks and the, and the, and the storm is over. He's able to save these people. But what does he do? What does he say? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, therefore Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. These, the harvest won't be taken in unless the workers go out. Right? God uses means. And we need to ask God to send out the workers because that's what God does. He sends out workers and the workers bring in the harvest. When the Apostle Paul is evangelizing in the book of Acts. 
He's going around. He's traveling all around and preaching. Look at what it says, Acts 17, 1-4. How does he do this? Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul. He doesn't just walk in and and assume that God is not going to use the means of his arguing. He goes in and he argues, and he reasons, and he persuades. Acts 18.4, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks Acts 19.8, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is how God works. He works through men speaking, reasoning, arguing, persuading. He also uses men suffering. 2 Timothy 2.10, this is the Apostle Paul, this is the the man that the Holy Spirit used to to teach us most clearly about things like election, predestination, the sovereignty of God, which we believe here. But look at what he says, 2 Timothy 2.10. For this reason, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Just wrap your mind about what he's saying there. I believe in election, the Apostle Paul says. The reason you believe in election is because what I wrote, Paul says, right? I mean, Paul's the one that speaks of it most. It's all over the Bible, but man, is it clear in the Apostle Paul. And yet he says, For this reason I believe I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they too may receive salvation and with it eternal glory. How are the elect going to be saved? How are the elect going to be saved? If people like the Apostle Paul endure things, suffer things, that's how it's going to happen. It won't happen apart from that. God uses means. He has work that he wants to get done. He has a will. He has a plan. And he has chosen to use means to get it done. 1786, England, group of men, pastors mainly, but also uh, one man who was a shoemaker, a cobbler, were very impressed with the need to send the gospel to to the heathen to the nations, in this case, India. And they prayed and they talked and they prayed and they planned and they talked. And one of them was a man named William Carey, the shoemaker. He said, I'll go. Someone's got to go. I'll go. I'll go to India. I'll leave my home. I'll take my family and I'll go to India. As long as you guys hold the rope, is what he said. You hold the rope, I'll go down into the pit. 
And so they presented this plan. Eventually it became known as the Baptist Missionary Society, but they presented a plan to all these other pastors and, and William Carey presented a plan. We're gonna go to, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to, to India. And he gets done presenting this plan. He's standing there in front of all these pastors and so the story goes. An older pastor said, sit down, young man. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid and mine. No, no, he won't, actually. He won't do it without your aid and mine. He will do it with your aid and mine. That's how he works. William Carey then wrote a book, and the title is so long that I can't remember it, but it's something like a discourse um, concerning God's use of means for the conversion of the heathen. Something like that. God uses means. This applies to our sanctification, our growth in godliness. How does it happen? How will you change? How will you grow? How will you become more like Jesus? We don't grow in godliness by sitting around waiting to be zapped by God somehow, you know? Let go and let God is not a biblical approach to sanctification. It's quite the opposite. 1 Corinthians 9.27, the Apostle Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There's no godliness if you sit around waiting to be zapped. You discipline yourself. The same thing with the discipline of our children. God uses means. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Foolishness is not childishness. It's not ignorance. It's not immaturity. It's not stupidity. Foolishness is rebellion against God. That's what foolishness means in the book of Proverbs. That's how our children come. They come wired hardwired with foolishness, foolishness bound up in the heart of a child. How's that going to get out of there? The Holy Spirit has to change him, right? But what does it say? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. I thought only the Holy Spirit gives wisdom. Yeah, that's right. I thought only the Holy Spirit can remove foolishness from the heart. Yeah, that's right. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline drives it far from him. That, those things go together. God uses means. The Holy Spirit uses means. And if you as a parent say, you know what? I'm not going to use correction. I'm not going to use discipline. I'm not going to use the rod of instruction and all of that. I'm just going to wait for God to zap my child and make them wise. Well, now you're the fool. Because this is what God has said. He uses means. Don't expect to get the result without using the means. Where, does, where else does God use means? God 
used means in the most significant act in the history of the world. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Look at this. This is the Apostle Peter. He's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of, of Jews from all over the world have come, and he's preaching to them. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by, by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who killed Jesus? Well, Isaiah 53 says this. Isaiah 53 says, in the Old Testament, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The Lord has caused the iniquities of us all to fall on him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. God smote Jesus Christ. The Lord was pleased to crush him. On the cross, our Lord Jesus bore the wrath of God that sinners like us deserved. It was the wrath of God. It was God pouring out his wrath. God forsook his son on the cross. God killed Jesus. And that's what the cross is all about. The cross is not an accidental death. The cross is not the unintended consequence of Jesus flying off the handle in his preaching and making people hate him. The cross was the perfect plan of God. Later on in the book of Acts, just a couple chapters later, Acts 4, the people, the, the apostles are praying, and this is what they say. Acts 4, 27 and 28, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Do you see that? All these people gathered together to do whatever God predestined to occur. So who killed Jesus? Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The apostle Peter says to all the Jews of Jerusalem, you killed Jesus. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. Now, how can that be? How can it be that God was pleased to crush him and yet you nailed him to the cross? Both are true because God uses means. God uses instruments. He uses tools. He uses means to do his will. God uses means. He used means to create the world. He uses means to reveal himself to men. He uses means to accomplish his will in the world through prayer. He uses means to bring about the salvation and the sanctification of his people. He uses means to produce a godly seed as we raise our children and discipline them. He uses 
means to protect the lives of his children. He uses means to provide for his servants. And so, you ready? Yes, God does in fact need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he needs your money. Because it ain't going to get done unless you give your money. It's how God works. And so if you sit through this capital campaign and you, you think in your heart, look at all these rich people. I mean, we're just, we're just oozing with rich people, right? Look at all these rich people. I mean, God doesn't need my money. Wrong. And if you think, you know, I don't have to give. When, when, when God is pleased to build a building, he'll do it without my aid. Sit down, young man. God's going to build a building, he'll do it without your aid and mine. Wrong. It's crazy. It's rebellious. It's faithless. No, he won't do it without you. He'll do it with you and with your money. This is how he always works. He uses weak, pitiful, sinful instruments to accomplish his holy, almighty will. And if you decide you won't be a part of that, fine. Fine. But you will reap what you sow. You don't want to be a part of God's eternal, global, cosmic plan to subdue the world through our Lord Jesus Christ and the preaching of his gospel among all the nations. You don't want to be a part of that? Fine. But what are you going to think on your deathbed? Look, God, you know, I, I, I know there was a building to build. I know there was... There were missionaries to send out. I know there were churches to plant. I know that all of that takes money. But you know what? Look at the car that I bought with that money. Look, look at the house that I built with that money. Look at the, God I know, but look at all the vacations I had. That takes money. You're lying on your deathbed. What do you want to look back on? No, God doesn't need your money. But the only way this will get done is if you give your money. What a, what a privilege. Don't resent that. Jump up and down about that. God's going to do wonderful things. He's doing wonderful things in this world. And we can be a part of that? That's crazy. It's great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though you could do everything without any of us, you could certainly preach without me, a sinful and weak man. You could send angels to us and deliver your word perfectly, clearly, and yet you choose to use men 
And Lord, you choose to use men to accomplish your eternal purposes in this world. You choose to use men preaching the gospel, men and women sharing their faith. You, you choose to use men and women and little children giving their money to get the work done. What a great kindness. Thank you, Lord, for letting us share in this work. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Make us give with glad and cheerful hearts and with faith, trusting you to use this. Lord, have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.